Welcome to Conversations That Matter, where we ask questions, explore topics, and shine a light on what's truly important. Hello, I'm Steve McNall of Now Media Group. Today I'm joined by Kevin Falcon, the new leader of the BC Liberal Party. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Steve. Now, you may be the new leader of the BC Liberal Party, but you're not new to the party or politics. Give us a bit of a rundown of your background. Sure. So, look, I first ran in 2001 uh, with Gordon Campbell. Uh, I was put into cabinet um, that year. I was the youngest cabinet minister in in, uh, our government at the time, and I've served as uh, minister responsible for health. I've been minister of um, transportation and infrastructure, which most people uh, certainly know me by, especially in the Okanagan in terms of the William Bennett Bridge and the widening of uh, a lot of the highways there, especially from uh, Penticton, uh, you know, through the Penticton corridor there. Um, and uh, But I've also served as Deputy Premier and Minister of Finance. And then I made the decision to retire from public life in 2012 when I, my wife advised me that she was pregnant with our second daughter, um, who's now nine years old. And I've spent the last better part of the decade working in the private sector in a senior role with um, a company called Anthem Capital. So we've been involved in everything from mining and and, uh, companies involved in the beer industry, real estate development, et cetera. So what was the impetus to get back into politics? Well, funny enough, the same reason I left. I left because of my daughters, because I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to be an absent dad. And, um, you know, with my eldest daughter at the time was not even three years old and my wife was pregnant with her second. And so I really started thinking about um, my kids and making sure that I wanted to be a dad that was going to be present. And so um, uh, that's why I left. But ironically, I'm coming back for the same reason, not for my kids specifically, but for their generation. My daughters are now nine and 12 and I'm just very, very concerned just about the lack of leadership I'm seeing, frankly, around the world, but just people that are really in it for the right reasons to make, you know, um, significant changes, do the right thing in terms of the environment, in terms of mental health and, and issues around addiction, but also around the economy. We want to start, you know, making sure that we have policies that encourage uh, the economic growth, encourage entrepreneurship, et cetera. And I think all of those things are under threat right now. And I just think that um, it was important that, uh, that that I try and run and hopefully revitalize, re-energize the BC Liberal Party and attract some great diverse candidates so that we can go into the next campaign with some big, bold ideas and some great candidates. And, and if we do that, uh, I believe we can earn back the trust of British Columbians to form government and get big things done again. And that's, I guess, what it hinges on is being able to form government and have that voice and make those changes for the future. Um, It's hard to do that in opposition. So in government, I know you're not there yet, but what would be some of the specific things you would spearhead? I mean, you talked about the environment and mental health, but you have specific things that can be done differently that would maybe replace the things that haven't worked in the past? Very much so. Look, let's start back from the basics. I always say to people, the most important thing you can do in government is to make sure you create an environment where people feel the confidence to want to invest uh, in your province. 
uh, whether it's the local entrepreneurs that are going to take a risk to invest their own capital to start a business, or whether it's foreign investors saying, you know, let's make a big investment in British Columbia in whatever sector uh, it may be. It could be in green tech, it could be in the local technology industry, whatever the case may be. And to do that, the reason it's so important is because you want to know that if you get those things right, if you get your tax and regulatory regime right, you will see a lot of new investment. You will see a lot of new startups. You will see small companies becoming big companies, and you will generate a lot of revenue into government. That allows government to do the things that we want to do, which is to fund a first-class public health and education system and do the right things for the environment, et cetera. And what I see happening right now is a government that and it's not that they're bad people. I, I always emphasize this. The NDP aren't bad people, and, and I would argue, uh, I would even argue they mean well. It's just they, frankly, don't know what the heck they're doing. And because of that, we've now got a situation where in almost every category, if you care at all about results, their results are just terrible. So in housing, we've got the highest housing prices we've seen in the history of this province in spite of the blizzard of new taxes they brought in in the first year that they were in power. That was their solution to the problem. They misdiagnosed it right from the outset, uh, and they've stumbled and bumbled ever since. Uh, and as a result, we now have the highest housing price. We've got some of the highest rent increases we've seen. Just the other day, it was, uh, you know, in the Vancouver Sun talking about how, you know, rent uh, in the Vancouver area has gone up by over, you know, $2,200, um, you know, to, to rent a typical place in, in Vancouver. And, and that's the same throughout the province to varying degrees. Um, you look at the mental health and addiction crisis. It's, you know, it's gotten, it's the worst we've ever seen, not just in Kelowna, but in Penticton and in Prince George and in Dawson Creek and in Victoria, Vancouver. And the problem is the government's going to continue doing more of the same thing, expecting to get different results. And so, you know, in all of these areas, uh, gas prices is the last one I really should mention because prior to the war breaking out, uh, the Ukrainian war breaking out and Russia's invasion, uh, we had the highest gas prices in North America, right here in British Columbia. And we still have them after the war broke out. And the problem is we've got a government that has been promising that they're going to deal with the skyrocketing price of gas. And yet everything they have done has contributed to it. Their opposition to the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, which tripled the only pipeline that delivers gas to the uh, lower mainland in British Columbia. Um, they've spent millions of dollars opposing that, failed at every turn, but nevertheless frustrated that, that project. And as a result, in part, the constrained supply has been driving up prices. So all of these things, I think, require some leadership that's going to say, okay, how can we deal with these big challenging issues and how can we do it in a way that gets results? And that's what I'm really focused on. So in terms of economic growth, well, taxation rates, um, regulatory regime, those are really key to making sure that you get the balance right so that you encourage investment and growth and entrepreneurship. Um, the NDP have done the opposite. We've now got the highest personal income tax rates in North America um, at 53.5% is the top rate here in British Columbia. Uh, that's up from 43% when I left government. Um, and, you know, and yet all of it, the, they've increased the corporate tax rates. They've increased costs on small business. They've added all these other additional costs at a time when small business has been struggling and barely hanging on throughout a two-year pandemic. 
Um, so I think it's so important that we look at all of those costs and taxes that the NDP uh, have put in place and we say to ourselves, how do we make sure that we're going to have tax levels that encourage investment, encourage economic growth, and encourage people to come to British Columbia and invest and start a future and build a, you know, raise their family and build a, a business? Um, so they're not, they're not getting those things right. Then on the specific things, um, we can talk about those if you want, but we, we just have to take a very, very different direction in terms of how we deal with mental health and addictions, uh, how we uh, deal with the environment to make sure we get the kind of results that British Columbians want to see, et cetera. You did a good job of explaining why gas prices are high and how they could be brought down with better distribution. People love to talk about house prices, and house prices, most people think, well, it's the market determines it. That's just the way it is. With record high prices throughout the province, what can government do to make it more affordable for first-time buyers or middle or low-income earners? Sure. Well, the very first thing you have to do is diagnose the problem properly. And what the NDP did is they looked at it and said, oh, this is easy. It's just a bunch of foreign buyers and, and uh, you know, big developers that are causing all this problem. So let's just layer on a whole blizzard of taxes under the housing sector, and that will deal with this problem. Well, here we are, almost five years later, and obviously it hasn't worked at all. We've got the highest prices we've ever seen. Now, anyone that had a modicum of knowledge about the marketplace and economics would know, as we all did in the private sector, that this was just not going to end well. Uh, and the reason is, is that um, they misdiagnosed it. And I say that by, by saying this. Foreign buyers have always been part of the market in British Columbia. Uh, they certainly are in the Okanagan with Alberta buyers and sometimes buyers from back east, maybe even some foreign buyers, uh, you know, in foreign countries like China, et cetera. But for the most part, they've been a pretty small part of the market. And in fact, uh, because government actually keeps those statistics, they know exactly what percentage it is. And it's less than uh, 5% of the buyers in our marketplace. And I think that's been especially instructive over the last two years during COVID when we've had absolutely no foreigners coming into British Columbia at all as a result of the uh, the economic lockdowns that were taking place around the world. And yet, in spite of that, we still saw uh, price increases because the demand is still there. The domestic demand for real estate is still there. And what the NDP didn't figure out was that if you didn't do something to deal with the supply constraints, then you're never going to get this problem solved. And so instead, they thought that government could deal with all this. They said, you know, we can add all these taxes. Uh, we can make crazy commitments like we're going to build 114,000 homes in 10 years, which, of course, they're never going to do. They're not even close. At their current pace, it'll take them 100 years. Um, but but what you realize when you understand the market, and you've been in the market as I have uh, for a decade and more, um, that very quickly you realize, look, 25% of the cost of every new home sold in British Columbia today is made up of taxes. It's federal, provincial, and local government taxes. It's everything from the GST to the PST to the property transfer tax to the community amenity contributions, development cost charges, you know, public art charges. I could go through the list. It's a lengthy one. But, but what that means is that all of those costs, they don't get absorbed by developers. They all get passed along to the consumers who end up buying the housing. And then these same local politicians that are responsible for imposing all these costs then complain about housing unaffordability. Um, it's ironic, isn't it? But that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is supply. We have to have a situation where we require local governments 
to get the supply into the marketplace to feed the uh, the demand that's out there. Uh, it is not uncommon in Vancouver, for example, where you've got an NDP mayor. Um, it is not uncommon for a straightforward single, um, you know, residential high rise to take five or six years to get through the approval process. That is just ridiculous. All of that delay costs money. All of that cost gets added onto the cost of the product, and that gets you know passed through to the consumers who end up buying this product. Um, so there are some local governments that do a good job, but there are many that don't. And we have to make sure that legislation is brought in to ensure that there is what I call a carrots and sticks approach, a carrots to induce and, and encourage them to do the right thing in terms of having uh, supply get through their um, bureaucratic processes in a timely and efficient manner and, and sticks to penalize them when that's not happening. Because at the end of the day, what I care about is results. And I want to make sure that young British Columbians in particular, those that are born and raised here in British Columbia, have a credible path to home ownership, and they are never going to get it if we have a situation like we have today, where you've got a government that just misunderstands the entire marketplace, layers on a whole bunch of costs, uh, and doesn't understand how critical supply is. Now, I should say that recently David Eby, uh, the minister responsible for housing, the worst minister of housing as far as I'm concerned that we've ever had in this province, um, has been spending the last year having secret meetings with the Urban Development Institute. Uh, and, and frankly, that's a good thing because he's starting to get an education on how the housing market works. And he has recently been, you know, frankly, stealing my idea that I've been talking about since I launched my leadership campaign about, you know, bringing forward changes to force local governments to do better on the supply issue. My concern is because he doesn't know what he's doing, he's going to get it all wrong. And that's a real concern because to do it right, you have to work with local governments and make sure you cooperate with them to get the right results so that you're going to you know, get the housing supply you need. Renee Merrifield, the Kelowna Mission MLA who ran against you for the Liberal leadership, put it well when she said, get all levels of government out of the way and let a building boom happen, meet that supply and see prices stabilize. Is that kind of... Uh, uh, a simple way to put it as well? Yeah, you know, it, it really is. Um, and in many ways, uh, she's really nailed it. If you look at, for example, when did we have the greatest amount of rental product built uh, in our province? Well, if you if you actually look around, you'll see it took place between the years of 1978 to the early 80s. Why? Because the federal government had a very simple program called the MERB program. It was, it was stood for multi-unit residential building program. And what they allowed was a flow-through of capital cost. I won't go too much into the detail, but essentially it allowed a flow-through of uh, what's called CCA or capital cost allowance to go through to um, limited partners that would be investing in projects that would you know, allow a developer to build uh, this type of housing, rental housing. As a result of that, it created a boom in rental housing. And when that project was stopped, uh, so did all the rental housing construction. And literally in the lower mainland, you look around and most of the rental housing all came from that era. Uh, recently, there's been some new rental building being constructed, including uh, the company that uh, that I worked for, uh, Anthem Properties, uh, has built rental uh, projects that we're very proud of. But the returns and the margins are very, very thin. And it means that, you know, you have to hang on to them for a long time before you really see a return on your investment. But there could be some simple changes made. Uh, to tax uh, the tax regime, to create the kind of incentives that Renee is talking about that would say to government, get the heck out of the way and let the private sector do what they do best, which is to build a lot of this stuff. And you could get a ton 
of new construction and projects into the marketplace, helping to achieve government uh, objectives. And government can lay out the yardsticks as to what they want to see in terms of uh, affordable units, rental market, rental units, et cetera. And as long as the economics makes sense, it'll get built. And, and, but the problem is we've got a group of people in government that mean well but just don't know what they're doing. Uh, they don't come from a background of business, so they don't understand the market and how to make things work and how to work with the business community and create the right incentives, uh, you know, the, again, the carrot and sticks approach uh, to achieve the objectives that you have uh, uh, in government. Now, quickly, as we wrap up, I've got two questions to ask you. There's talk of the BC Liberal Party changing its name. What's the thinking behind that? Yes, and that's something that uh, that I raised on day one when I launched my leadership uh, race, and actually a, a couple of other candidates uh, also, uh, you know, agreed that that's probably something we should consider. Look, the the reason we're considering that is is quite simple. Um, we want to make sure that our name does not create brand confusion, and by that I mean there's still a lot of people that when they go to vote. Uh, they, they're thinking federal politics. So they see our name and they say, BC Liberal, and they are right. right. Oh, okay, yeah, I'm not a Liberal, I'm a Conservative, or whatever the case may be. They might say, oh, great, I'm a Liberal. But the problem is, it does create a lot of confusion out in the public. And we hear that, and frankly, I have to tell you, I've been hearing that for 20 years. And so after 20 years, uh, and, you know, uh, and people are still telling me that they're confusing our party with federal politics, that is a challenge. And it's not that we don't like liberals. They're a hugely important part of our coalition. Uh, and so are conservatives. But we just don't want to create that kind of confusion. So what I committed to do was that we would uh, look at the name changes of the party. We would move quickly on this. I'd like to get something to our party convention coming up in June so that we can say, do you agree that we should change the name of the party? And if so, we'll come back to you with a, 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 a recommended name change so that the members can vote on it quickly. And I think that um, um, that's what we want to do is deal with that quickly and make a decision fast and then get on with it. Um, because I do think it's something that we should consider doing, and that's why we're bringing it forward. And is that because the BC Liberal Party is liberal in philosophy but conservative in financing? I think that's a, actually a really good um, analogy, yes. We, we are, we are uh, fiscally conservative and, and socially more liberal, for sure. Um, I, I would call it just, you know, our positions, I think, are just, frankly, smart positions. Uh, you know, we don't like to see people struggling with mental health left roaming the streets. We don't think that that's compassionate. We think a more compassionate approach is actually providing facilities that literally look after those folks on a 24-7 basis with a goal to reintegrating them back into society when they're stabilized and able to do so. Um, it's much more compassionate and responsible than just leaving people on the street. So is that conservative or liberal? I don't know. To me, it's just smart because we're focusing on outcomes. And, and that's what I really care about is getting good and better results. Now, before any of this can happen, you need to vie for a by-election seat and get into the legislature. Tell us a little bit about that. When is it? Sure. So, uh, Andrew Wilkinson, our form leader, did a, a very generous thing, and he announced that he would be resigning his seat, and he has resigned his seat in the riding of Vancouver, Colchena. And uh, what that means is that the Premier of the province uh, has to make a decision to call a by-election. Now, he has up to six months in which to do so. Uh, my preference would be he do it earlier, uh, not later, but that's entirely up to him. Um, so whenever he calls that by-election, that means that 
there will be a 28-day mini campaign in that riding, and uh, um, my hope is that uh, if I work hard, I should be able to win the support of that riding and become the next MLA for Vancouver Colchena and then become the official leader of the opposition in the legislature. Well, good luck, Kevin, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. Really appreciate it. If you have any topics you would like to hear a conversation on, email us at podcasts at nowmediagroup.ca.